three, two. What's up, my reelies? Another episode of Rotating Reels coming at you right now. This is Taylor, one of your hosts. With me today from Portland, Oregon, I got Keegan Tran. Keegan, say hello to the people. More like my mind is gone. Ah, there he is. Also calling in from Seattle, Washington, like myself, we got Hank, the showstopper, Showalter. Hank, say what's up. I'm transmitting directly to your brain. That's right, right in through the ears. And that's topical because today our main review is for The Empty Man. The man potentially inside all of us, which is empty. I'm not going to read the blurb. I'm not going to read the IMDb blurb because I don't think it does justice for exactly the mindfuck that this movie is. And I've already sworn, so we're already going to at least a PG-13 rating on this one. (laughs) I don't know how else to do it. This movie has so much stuff in it that it's not suitable, not just for children, but for adults. This movie is not suitable for anyone because it really messes with your head. This is a psychological thriller along with some classic horror jump scares. Really, really excited to talk about it with the boys here. But before we get into that, we have to talk about what we've been watching this week. And to start us off, I'm going to go with Wham Bam. Thank you, Mr. Tran. Go ahead. Tell us what the people have been watching. Ooh, what an introduction. All right. So let me share my screen real quick just to get our three minutes started. Uh, I am only going to focus on one thing that I've watched this past week. Here we go. So I didn't watch any movies this week. I only checked in with a new show that's on AMC+. Plus. This requires a little bit of a history lesson. So the show itself is called Kevin Can Fuck Himself. It's on AMC+. Plus. It stars, <laughs> uh, I think her name's Annie Murphy. It's the sister from Schitt's Creek. She plays Alexis. Uh, great actress. Uh, so the history lesson comes in when you think back, uh, Kevin James, right? He's in a, he was King of Queens. He's in a lot of terrible network TV comedies, your classic four camera setup. Um, and in those shows, there's this trope that precedes a lot of them, uh, specifically a show that he was in recently called, uh, Kevin can wait. This trope that's been around a while, but has kind of been modernized by Kevin James, is this idea of this overweight, slobby man who, you know, just does nothing but work at his menial job and drink beer with his buddies, who has this smoke show of a wife who, for some reason, is happy in this marriage, even though, by all means, he's not a great father, he's not a great husband, he's kind of just a jackass in general. Um, And there was some controversy with his newer show, uh, Kevin Can Wait, which I think ran from 2018 to 2020. In the first season, he had uh, a wife played by Erin Haley, I want to say the actress's name was. A very talented actress. Um, And then when they came back for the second season, she was unceremoniously written off as being dead. She died in the break between the two seasons. And then he writes in a new wife later on. And in an interview, when asked why they killed that character off he basically said we ran out of ideas of how to write this character we didn't have anything left for the mom character so we killed her so we could focus on kevin james and whatever is interesting about kevin james shitty life (laughs) that inspired ann murphy who read the script for this new show which is basically kind of a, a new take on that and the idea is that it's a classic four camera sitcom setup 
uh, this kind of very similar Kevin James stand-in is married to Ann Murphy. They live in a kind of shitty home in a kind of shitty area of, I think they're in like Massachusetts or something, way out in the booties of like Kind of shitty New state, Jersey. yeah, got it. Uh, yeah, a very shitty state, I would even go so far as to say. Um, but <laughs> he's a horrible husband, and he jokes with her all the time. He just sends her on errands. He's just really, really bad. But whenever Kevin's in the room or whenever it's always kind of focal point of him and there's really great lighting it's really soft fun lighting and every time Kevin leaves the room or uh, Allison is the main character's name whenever she leaves the room to be on her own it cuts to Breaking Bad Orange is the New Black this dark gritty green crime show aesthetic and she hates her life and she basically is starting to realize that the entire world be it the TV world that we're experiencing or her world, as is real to her, is completely centered around her husband and everything that he wants and gets. So she basically comes up with this idea that she wants to kill her husband. She's done with this. And so the entire show over these first two episodes that are out are cutting back and forth between her interacting with him and we get this fun, buzzy, laugh track stuff. And then it cuts to her when she's at work and just kind of piecing through how shitty her life is and how she wants to get out of it, which is in this very, very gritty, realistic setting. So it's really, really interesting. And it's in direct opposition to a lot of those cheesy sitcom dads that are just absolute turds of human beings. This is really, really interesting. I think she, uh, Anne Murphy, that is, is an actress that is picking some very fun TV roles. I think Shit's Creek is a lot of fun as well, and I think her character's good there too. Um, so this is on AMC Plus. It's kind of a weird subscription service. If you guys have it, it's an absolute recommend. I think at some point this will trickle down to AMC's free tier. Um, so maybe wait for that to happen. But this is a, a really, really interesting show that's tackling a class of characters of, of TV, of mistreated TV moms, <clears throat> kind of giving them some space to be in their own and, and be characters on their own, which is really interesting. So I'm loving it so far. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. And, and so outside of that, I'm, I'm going to call it a gimmick and not that that's not a plot device sure. that the gimmick doesn't apply to, but is it good beyond that? It's yeah. So it's good in so much as Anne Murphy's a great actress. I think they're setting up enough stuff to keep it interesting. She's kind of an old high school flame moves back to town and she starts realizing like what her life could have been. I think most mm. of it's all really centered on her life and, and how bad it's become and how good it's going to be potentially afterwards. I think there's like some hints that she might actually kill him and it turns into a little bit of a crime thing. But on its own merit, it's really fun. I think it's it's just a little extra fun flair that they, they add in that whole kind of split uh tone that's awesome yeah. i go ahead hank oh i just want to say i hate you keegan um, from the <laughs> bottom of my heart for making me consider another streaming service because that sounds really interesting <laughs> i'm um, right there i'm right there with you hank that's the first thing i thought I was like amc plus what the fuck is this but yeah. i i that does sound really really interesting an interesting premise not that not i don't think we should slight leah Ramini. I think Leah Ramini can can sure. pick up whatever he's uh, the King of Queens is putting down. So I don't, you know, Leah Ramini is a, is a proper queen in my eyes. Funny enough, when in in that new show that Kevin James had, uh, once he wrote off and killed the old character, he brought in Leah Ramini to be his new wife. <laughs> Hell yeah! So, That's how Leah rolls. What are you gonna do? I that and Scientology documentaries can't can't knock her hustle. Oh, we shouldn't talk about them on air. They'll come yeah, after what? us. No, that's it. It's too late. It's too late. It's done. We're done. This is the God. end of rotating reels. Sorry, everyone. 
<laughs> if you want to donate to the legal fund, we'll put a, a link in the description. <laughs> Thank you for it's all too our late. Patrons. Tom Cruise is already uh, gnawing on my foot. <laughs> <laughs> our Patreon sent us uh, some commissary, so Keegan doesn't have to keep getting beaten up in jail anymore. It's really thank. Thank you so much, Patreons. We really appreciate it. Okay, right. is it Keegan? Anything else you watched this week? That's it. Just that show. All right, Hank, you're up. What'd you watch this week? All right, so I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna do something a little different. I haven't been watching shit this week. I, I've been busy with work, and I've just like needed some like time to kind of like you know play some video games and unwind. So I'm not gonna hit you with anything that's been on my TV because it's all reruns and shit. Uh, what I'm gonna do is talk you through some of the games that I've been playing, and also I'm gonna give a shout out to a tabletop role-playing game that I started running last weekend that I'm very very impressed by. Um, actually, I'm going to start with that one. Uh, so there's this little indie role-playing game publishing company uh, called Games Omnivorous. They're based out of Portugal. Uh, they're run by a single dude, uh, Andre Navoa. And this dude does like pretty much all the editing. He, he like ships the stuff personally, I think. Uh, and they just do really cool, like little, like really small press stuff. There's like only a thousand copies printed of any of their books. And I'm I, I have almost all of them. They're really good. But I recently got... Uh, one of their books that's actually written by the owner of the company himself, Andre Navoa. It's called 17th Century Minimalist. And it's a role-playing game that's like D&D, but it's set in a semi-realistic 17th century setting. Um, so, you know, you got, like, some flintlocks and stuff, but you also have, like, the nonsense that was going on in the 17th century. You have, like, the Rosicrucians are out there. You know, you got, like, secret societies. You have the beginnings of capitalism. And it comes with just, like, this little uh, portfolio of mini-adventures. Each one's just, like, two pages long and just completely ready to play out of the book with zero prep. It's really cool. It's, like, you know, you, you can pick up both the book and its portfolio of little adventures, and they're, like, yeah, you know, like grand total of I think like forty or fifty pages. Really cool stuff. Um, so anyway, that's a cool role playing game. If you're into role playing games at all, check out Seventeenth Century Minimalist. Um, on the video game side of things, I like playing my Nintendo Switch because I can you know hold it really close to my face and damage my eyesight. Um, <laughs> but so anyway. I have been playing it, and uh, I recently got a gift card uh, that I used on the eShop, picked up a couple titles. Um, so one that I picked up is in the Metroidvania genre, which means it's like kind of semi-linear. Uh, it's like a platformer game. It's a game called Blasphemous. I believe it's made by a Spanish studio, but it's got like this really grim atmosphere. Everything's blood-soaked, and it's kind of like this weird, like horrific parody. I call it a parody. It's not comedic. It's like a... Uh, perversion of like catholic imagery used to make like this really dark horror setting really cool game very punishing to play it's not easy it took me a lot of tries to get through some of those boss fights but really worth checking out um all of the art i think is hand animated and it really shows it looks wow. awesome so uh it's, it's pixel art but it's like a really stunning example of that um the last thing i want to call out is another metroidvania game um it is also hand animated, except instead of pixel art, it's hand drawn. And instead of being incredibly dark and grim, it is incredibly bright and cheerful. It's called uh, Wonder Boy and Monster Kingdom. Um, and it's a Metroidvania, you know, pretty standard for the genre. You're like going through trying to collect four things. You get new moves that let you move between areas. Um, but this one, 
the kind of the gimmick is that you can switch between different uh, shape-shifted forms that are different animals. So you can switch between mm. being like a pig, a snake, a frog, a lion, and they all have their own little abilities. It's pretty fun. It's pretty cute. Um, it doesn't have as much staying power for me as like Blasphemous did because it's not just soaked in blood and talking about suffering with every other line of text. Um, but I'd still yeah, no it, good. You know, if, if 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 you want something a bit more lighthearted and it, you know something that's not too challenging, check out Wonder Boy. I think there's a sequel coming out, and that's what I've been playing this week because I haven't been watching that much. Nice, nice. Okay, I'm gonna start. I'm gonna go into what I've been watching, but uh, first I'm gonna do a little Hank tribute. Well, something I've been playing. Uh, I've been playing a little Victoria 2. So this is Paradox Ooh. Studios. Yeah, same people as Crusader Kings 2. Um, and they're just like with Crusader Kings. They've just released Crusader Kings 3. Haven't gotten into that myself. But they're working on a Victoria 3. Um, so I uh, tried out a little bit of Victoria 2. It definitely shows its age. Uh, there's there's some ideological things to disagree with, and that laissez-faire capitalism always fails. It's not the best as if you want a real state-controlled economy. So that right off the bat, I'm already like, eh, this is you're gonna have to do some work to convince me. Um, but no, I had a good time, you know, working so much, don't get to podcasting so much, don't get to squeeze in so much game time <laughs> myself these days. Um, so it was fun to play a little, uh, play a little Victoria too. As for what I've been watching, I tried something else out that is, I think, outside of the normal vein for all three of us. And this was a Netflix original called Sweet Tooth. Have either of you guys heard of it before I go into it? I have heard. This is the one with like the little boy with antlers. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, seen, DC comic, pictures. right? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was originally a comic. Um, so I guess, excuse me, not a Netflix original, Netflix adaptation. Um, and it was interesting. So they're trying to do uh, a really difficult thing. They're trying to take basically Chronicles of Narnia, you know, real kids fantasy, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe kind of stuff. And then at the same time also show end-of-the-world apocalypse in a fairly realistic depiction of what people would do in the end-of-the-world apocalypse, which is, i.e., not be very nice, have a lot of nasty, horrible stuff going on. And so they're trying to jump back and forth between this kid's perspective of all this crazy shit going on, and he's not just a kid, he's a sheltered kid, he's lived in the woods, just his dad for like eight years, so he doesn't know anything about the world, and then we see the real world, and it is fucking terrible, and horrible, and people are suffering, and so this kid jumping between the two, so the first couple episodes, I wanted to give it a shot, I thought it was an interesting premise, want to see how they handle it, and they just didn't develop it, it just, mm. I think it was a bridge too far, trying to mix those two um, and, uh, you know, you, you can't go between this kid not knowing what a caramel apple is and this other guy just straight up murdering people. Like, that's a pretty hard, hard thing to merge. Um, so yeah. I only watched three episodes and then I thought, you know what, there's too much good stuff out today. I got to watch Loki. There's too much good stuff. I can't afford to waste time on Sweet Tooth. So I don't know if I'd recommend it to anybody. Maybe if you got kids, maybe angsty kids, if you got some angsty kids, they might find this uh, an interesting watch. Otherwise, I think it's I think it's probably a pass. Uh, but for me, that's all I've been watching. That's all I've been playing this week. So I think if we're ready, boys, we can get on to the main review, which is The Empty Man. So I'm not going to read the blurb. I'm not going to set us up. I'm just going to assume our audience, either they've watched the movie or they've never heard of it, and they're just sitting down, settling down, and they turn on. They're not even at the title sequence. The title sequence comes after that first act, that kind of little vignette in between and before the main story. So 
what would you guys tell that that neophyte novice audience about the empty man what would be your opinion to give to them if they haven't they don't know anything about it um keegan, uh, let's so keegan we start with you first uh let's go with hank okay okay yeah so uh he, here's what i got to say about the empty man first of all i really like it if you're part of the hank brigade the hank 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 of maniacs whatever you're calling yourselves these days the hank fans you're gonna like uh the empty man it's it's two hours well spent you know it, it is a bit long for a horror movie but i don't think it overstays its welcome i think it's an adaptation of a graphic novel um and i think it does a fairly good job of kind of like adapting source material uh and being a bit long because of that but also not just trying to ab adapt every panel so cool stuff there um i also think you know even if you're not a huge horror fan, if you want to watch, uh, you know, five movies in one sitting, but you don't have 10 hours, um, this could be a good choice. Um, and if you're a fan of reading, um, but uh, you've read like the works of Thomas Ligotti and you're like, this is a bit too dense, or you've read the works of Laird Barron and you're like, this is just a bit too much this movie uh, would be really good for you. Because, you know, like, it, it hits on a lot of, of the, the high notes of those two authors. Um, if, if, if you haven't read them or, or you've read them and you don't like them, maybe it's, like, you know, it, maybe that recommendation means nothing to you. But if you've read both those author, authors and either liked them or kind of bounced off of them because it was, like, a little bit impenetrable, I think this movie would be really good. Um, but overall, I like it. I think it's two, two hours well spent. Uh, I like the performances in it for the most part, uh, and I really like how dynamic a film it is because it really does feel like you get a lot in one little package. Yeah, hundred percent. Keegan, what'd you think? How, what would you tell people that are maybe going to watch this movie? Man, this is a trip. I this movie's a lot of fun, and I, I when I originally put this in my what I've been watching, I think I had talked about how the marketing for this was really confusing to me when I first saw it because it it looks, it, you know purely by title comparison you automatically think the bye bye man and you it, it, it kind of likens itself to that it a lot of the marketing material highlighted the teen stuff um which is a, a disservice to the, the movie um <clears throat> and it, it seems very much like that when you're going into it and it's not it's like you guys have said it's it's a huge amalgamation of different kinds of tones across thriller and more think piece stuff and you know more highbrow horror um it's an absolute whirlwind. And I think Hank in his part did something that I did in my, what I've been watching and is that this movie really gets easier to explain through comparison with other works. And I did this when I was talking about last time of just comparing it to, you know, there's five movies and each of them is like 127 hours or this and this and this, uh, on its own merit. I don't think there's anything like it. I don't think I've seen something that combines so many different elements around these, these genres. Um, and I guess just to add something else in the ring, if you're a fan of twin peaks, specifically the, that, uh, twin peaks return, that new season from a, a year or two ago and kind of what that was putting down. I think this is very much in your wheelhouse of, of really playing around with your expectations and taking it into the surreal. But I fear that even saying that is a bit too much of a spoiler. So I think this movie is fascinating. I'm so stoked that it's not just something we all get to like take five minutes in turn to talk about and or what, I've been, what we've been watching. So I'm curious to, I, I know you guys have a lot of thoughts on this. I'm curious to see where you guys are landing on this once we get into spoilers. Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, you guys said basically what I would say on like a non-spoiler version of this movie, which is that 
the you know just from a high level it's a very interesting story the plot is very interesting subject matter um the acting the cinematography it's all it's all good um the score i think stands out i think the score is 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 really good um the the dialogue is okay the dialogue is not not the best and that's not really what the movie leans on so it's it's tolerable there's nothing there's no dialogue that's wrong or or incorrect or anything like that um but you you put all these pieces together around this this fascinating story um and if you're into sci-fi if you're into horror i think it works on on almost every single level um, so I, that said, I don't know exactly what we can talk about without going into spoilers because it is so plot driven and, and there's mm-hmm. so much complexity and you could really spoil things. Um, so I kind of don't have much left to say non-spoilery. Uh, guys, do you have anything you want to say that's non-spoilery before we get into the crazy plot? Um, yeah, I guess, like, just, like, a couple things. Uh, just, like, I, I think I'd echo what Taylor said about the dialogue. It really feels like it's adapted from a written work, which it is. But, you know, it's, like, a little bit stilted at times. Um, you know, maybe written by someone that didn't realize such a big budget was going to be thrown behind the production <laughs> of it. You know, like, someone that's like, ah, you know, people are, are coming for the panels and not for the bubbles. Um you know, but uh, I, I don't think that's really enough to, like, throw off the movie because I think a lot of the movie are, like, kind of cool, like, lingering shots where they kind of focus on, like, the scene they've created, the mood they've created. So even if you're normally put off by kind of stilted dialogue, this movie has a bit of it, uh, but I don't think that it ends up detracting from the movie that much. Um, uh, I do think uh, that there are a couple moments in the movie uh, we've mentioned that it kind of becomes five different movies at once and I think that the director of the movie was kind of a little bit better at some of those movies than he was at others but that's not to say that any of them are bad it's just there's some like real real high points such that when you get to like a bit more of a middling point it feels like a kind of a letdown but in aggregate overall I think it's a real fun ride and you know like you're getting five movies in two hours. You know that's 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 a dream. Just go watch mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Keegan, anything else you want to add? Yeah. So I was just looking it up. Uh, Hank, you you brought up an interesting point that like they were you know maybe got a little bit bigger of a budget than they were expecting. Uh, you know, budgets are always they're never finite. So whatever you Google is potentially wrong. But what I'm seeing is that they had a sixty million dollar budget, and I think we've we've talked about budgets in the past and how much like. Uh, that can influence a movie and, and what it ends up looking like. But man, for 16 million, obviously that's more than any of us have ever, or probably will ever see in one place. But you know, in the world of cinema, that's not a lot of money to make the the scale of movie that they did. So if, if that's a true figure, that's just shocking to me that they produced this product. Yeah. It doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound right. There, it doesn't there's sound like, right at all. I, there's, it just couldn't be right. There's so many different locations they go to and so many sets they got to build. I mean, that would be, if that's true, if that's a true figure, I, my rating has just jumped several (laughs) points. I mean, that, that's just incredible to do this on that budget. Yeah. If that's true, then they, they pulled a prospect with this one. They didn't, they didn't let their budget show at all. Yeah. 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 Miss you, Arthur. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, let's, if, if nothing else, Let's get into spoilers because I don't know how to talk much about this movie without spoiling anything. So if you haven't watched it, please go watch it because the spoilers will spoil it. We were talking about uh, in the the pre-show, we were talking about 
how it fair, held up on a first versus a second watch. And I think the first watch was better for me just because of the sheer shenanigans of everything that goes on. Um, and if you know what's coming, it's not that it's not good. You, there's still a lot to get out of a rewatch. There's a lot of complexity going on, so it helps to rewatch. But that first watch for me, mwah, just just nothing's, nothing's going to beat that experience. So please, if you haven't watched it and you want to watch it, if we've sold you, go watch it and then come back. If this sounds like not up your alley, great. You're fine. You don't need to do anything. You're just going straight into the spoilers. <laughs> so let's do it now. Can I actually okay. throw in one more thing? I'm so yeah, yeah. sorry to do this. I just do No, no, no go ahead. So this is... Uh, if you're going to be watching this, you're going to be watching it most likely on Amazon Prime where you're going to either rent it or buy it. I think it's six bucks to rent, ten dollars to buy. Um, there's two versions when you go to Prime. And so just if this is something you're considering watching and you're you're going to stop listening now before you go to spoilers, let me just tell you, it's the same price to get the 4K Ultra HD rental. I just bought it because I knew I liked this movie. I will say the first time I watched this movie, I watched it on my laptop and I had just bought the standard version because I didn't know they had broken them out. And there's a lot of things I didn't notice. There's a lot of scenes that are just looking at pitch black or looking at like a very dark blue poster and i was like why are they focusing on this watching the 4k man on a nice tv setup there's a lot of things that jump out at you so usually i'm not one to like harp on fidelity of of the quality of what you're watching but this is this kind of deserves to get the, the nicest version you could watch and if your if your interest has been peaked I might buy it because I've I've watched yeah. it twice. I think I'm anticipating I'm going to show it to other people. It might have been the better financial decision for me to have bought it. And and like that, yeah. that's how strongly I want to recommend this. If if you're already intrigued, if you're on the fence, then don't buy it. Rent it. But if you're intrigued, if this sounds like like right up your alley, because I think this is something that all three of I think this is a movie that all three of us would say, like, is a Hank movie or is a Keegan movie or is a movie that the Tebe's might like, as we call my followers. <laughs> so. I, I, I think there's going to be some pretty strong recommendations from all three of us out of this one. But let's Absolutely. let's get into spoilers. Let's do it. Let's talk about the nitty gritty. So, uh, Keegan, why don't you lead us off in spoilers? And let's – I want to do something interesting because, like we've said, there are five movies in this movie. And there's two pretty big distinctions. So that's the Bhutan story mm-hmm. and then the Missouri story. So let's start with the Bhutan story. Let's just let, treat that like its own little thing. Keegan, why don't you start us off? What'd you think of that? What what stood out to you? Man, this is uh, it's kind of interesting. So this is, I think, my impression of just reading a couple pages of the graphic novel. This is one of the the parts that I think follows very closely. And so, just you know, when you're watching it, we have a couple hikers. It's two couples that are moving through Bhutan. There's some pretty cool imagery, lots of mountains. They get to the peak, and then they realize there's a storm coming in. And as they're looking around, Paul, one of the guys, hears a ringing. He wanders off to follow it, falls into a small cave, and finds this, like, effigy. Uh, it's this, this like, this corpse, skeleton corpse. Maybe it's a statue of what turns out later to be the empty man. Falls under, goes into a coma or, like, a catatonic state. And then later we get our first glimpse of the empty man. And it's it's a 20-minute, uh, I, I don't even want to call it a vignette. It's a 20-minute you know protracted prologue it's long uh on its own man i and you gotta remember that the time when i was watching it first i didn't have any of this context i didn't know where we were headed later to get into all of our craziness and i was very much thinking this was a setup to the teen horror so i was like where are we going with this i'm so lost and i think we get you know the imagery of the empty man alone and his skeleton is already pretty spooky and this is again one of those scenes where like 
getting the the HD version and seeing those dark blacks, that cave is creepy, man. And it's it really sets, like you said, with the music coupled together, it sets a pretty weird kind of uneasy tone right off the bat. And I think we we skip forward and you get some stuff where they're trying to resuscitate Paul and he's in the cabin and you know they're stuck in a storm. Um, and we get our first glimpse of the empty man and the way that he attacks people, which is you know you see him, you take a step towards him, he steps back you take a step backwards and he follows you and ultimately once you turn around he gives chase and that mechanic comes up later and i mean hank can attest i've seen a lot of horror movies i'm sure he's seen 10 times more i've never seen anything like that and the idea of being in a standoff to being chased is pretty intimidating to me and it's it really it, it set just this general unease going into the rest of it so it it completely does not feel like it's setting up anything and it you know you don't really realize that this is going to be important until two hours later and the first time i watched it i completely forgot about the significance of this like by the time we we make this all tie up and bring it back to the narrative i was like holy shit that happened two hours ago i watched this happen (laughs) so it's i mean you're gonna see it you're gonna be confused just try to jot down names and remember what happens because you're you're invested in the ride man and realize it ain't about you baby (laughs) <laughs> it ain't about you. This is this whole thing's got nothing to do with you. Okay, Hank, what do you think? That first little that the Bhutan movie. What'd you think of that? Yeah, so I'm gonna speak to the Hank the Hank Maniacs. They've seen all the horror movies I've seen. If you've seen Netflix's adaptation of Adam G. Neville's The Ritual, um, mm. that movie is okay. Uh, it's really good in the beginning. It's eh at the end. Um, but this opening sequence is like the best parts of the ritual in a lot of ways. Um, I won't, it's, uh, you know, like it's got like creepy cabins, creepy caves, remote wilderness locations where it's not easy to find your way out. Like it's got all those elements. They pull them off really well. Um, the, uh, the characters are like kind of surprisingly fleshed out for just knowing them for 20 minutes. Yeah. Um, one of them kind of returns later but not really but you know like I, I feel like I understand why these characters are frustrated with each other by the end so that's impressive and uh, I really like the cave sequence um, Keegan talked on it a bit but like they have these like cool shots where like the camera's on the ground you can see these bugs crawling all over it's kind of like this like living environment it's moving it's creepy it's it's you know like kind of psychedelic without just doing like the obvious like throwing a psychedelic filter onto you know tons of movies do that shit they're like oh we're gonna mix up the image and that tells you it's psychedelic they do it like seemingly naturally really cool shit um yeah so i really liked that scene the the, it's not really a scene that uh prologue sequence sequence yeah and uh on on first viewing um when we broke out of that i was like and we get to like the next sequence, which I won't get into too much detail, but there's a different main character in the next sequence. Um, I was like, wait, is this guy supposed to be one of the hikers? Yeah. And like, I spent like so long trying to figure out which one he was and like how they, you know, survived or came back from the dead. And like when they finally kind of bring it full circle, uh, really cool stuff. Um, though I will say that on a rewatch, uh, the, so first watch really really liked it also really liked it on a rewatch but it did open up like some questions uh like you know there's kind of like this implication that uh the guy that like falls into the cave kind of like beckons this mysterious entity into the world by being exposed to it 
and like him coming out into the greater world kind of like kicks off some of the events that are happening um and so like on a second watch there are some like little questions that kind of pop up like there's like a man-made bridge in the area it seems to be a somewhat popular hiking spot and they tell you that like this this thing hasn't happened in like a thousand years and you kind of have to ask like why not um, you know, it, yeah. like, it seems like this dude was in a place where other people were. So, like, you know, it, 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 like, it, it could seem, like, kind of, like, convenient or it, it could be, you know, part of some greater meaning. But it's one of those things that, uh, you, you know, like, after watching it the first time, you kind of think, like, maybe there will be, like, a little bit more to unpack there. And I think visually there is. But in terms of the plot, it's still left fairly ambiguous. Um, so, you know, if you're one of those people that rewatches a movie and you're, like... I need to like understand all the intricacies. I don't know if a rewatch is going to do that for you on this segment. Not necessarily a knock against it, uh, but just something that I picked up because I went in trying to be like, okay, let's let's untangle this a bit further. Yeah, no, I hundred percent. I um, just that that you know, because knowing what happens in the Missouri segment, um, I watched the Bhutan segment trying to find more meaning or, or trying to find little things, and so there's all these, and I at first was thinking well there's not we're not finding anything else out that's new but it opens up a lot more questions right so when they cross that bridge and that bridge seems to delineate the rest of bhutan from and by the way as an aside these hikers are already idiots you need a guide to be in bhutan bhutan's this closed country i mean it's it's a it's a very different place in the rest of the world um for good or for bad um, and these people seemingly just snuck into Bhutan. So right off the bat, you're like, well, maybe this was your fault. Um, <laughs> but they they uh, they cross this bridge that clearly is is somewhat in use. The whole cave sequence happens, which I don't need to reiterate anymore, other than to say it's pretty great to see the monster within the first 10 minutes of a movie and yeah. have it not lose anything. Um, I think that was just a sign of, of how good this movie is. Um, but then when they go to the cabin, it's very clear someone lives at this house. This is not an abandoned house. There are goats here, right? There's a valuable property, right? So someone's living here. And in my mind, that just opens more questions, right? What did people know about that bridge? What did people know, of, you know, people in Bhutan, outs, not these hikers, what do they know about this? Um, and that may seem a bit silly when you're just watching it for the first time, but when you get to the second segment we're about to talk about in Missouri, then it gets really interesting. What did people know about any of this? Um, the only thing I want to say, the only little bits I want to say about um, the Bhutan uh, segment of the movie is that it introduces us to the score of the movie, which then gets reiterated throughout the movie, and so it's, it is a Bhutan-centric score in that it features this really heavy tonal almost buddhist monk type music um this 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 long long tones of, of a male vocalist um and that is creepy as shit even on the rewatch when they're the minute they're crossing that bridge and homeboy says do you guys hear that i was like oh no oh no it's too late it's too late you're fucked you you heard it it's done it's over you're gone there's no hope for this guy anymore after this um and you gotta and remember you hear him you see him on the first then, day yeah. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. And so that, like, knowing all of that, watching this Bhutan scene, it added to the dread and the terror because I was like, there is absolutely nothing he can do. And then the last thing I want to say about the Bhutan segment was, um, so now we're getting into major spoilers, uh, this thing, this multi-armed skeleton empty man thing has 
said some words to these people and has made two of them utterly under its control. And so when the girlfriend or potentially wife of the main hiker dude who uh, comes up later, when she kills the other two hikers and then she's looking at him and they're totally not in control of their bodies and a single tear rolls down his eyes, his his face as sh- they have this acknowledgement that, holy shit, I love you and what the fuck is happening? This is the worst thing that's ever happened. This is terrible. There's nothing we can do. And then she throws herself off the cliff. I thought that little moment of just sheer nothingness. They there's nothing they could do. There was yeah. that that carries itself throughout the movie, and it's very interesting to have a horror movie where the characters, the humans that you're presumably rooting for, or hoping aren't succumbing to this evil, can do absolutely nothing. They're irrelevant. Their ability to do anything is totally irrelevant. They are just succumbing to this horror show that's happening to them. Um, and, and you still care about them. I mean, that that, that is, is a really, really interesting setup in the first, what, 20 minutes of a movie to get mm, us into that? Yeah. But now, now we're going on to the rest of it, the thing that the IMDb blurb is all about, apparently, which <laughs> is the Missouri scene. We got an ex-cop. He's seen some stuff, and he's investigating this... Uh, that's what, I, that's what I called in my notes. That's what I called this portion of the movie, the investigation. So I kind of broke it into three parts. We got the Bhutan, investigation, and then the... Pontifex. Uh, yeah, the Pontifex, the Da Vinci Code, Jason Bourne, end of the movie. So second, let's talk about the investigation. Let's talk about Missouri. Let's talk about this old cop. What would you guys think about him? Keegan, let's start you off again. Yeah, I. It, so I think... Hank did a good job of bringing this up that like you know you're going straight from the Bhutan stuff you're like oh okay I'm hanging out with this guy maybe he'll he'll come back at some point Paul will be consequential to the story uh, he's not uh, in this part at least so he jumps straight to our new main character running and you're like oh my god is that him running he meets up with a family friend who's a teenage girl at first maybe his daughter it's a little confusing of what the relationship is here she's sitting in his backyard she has the most cult-like haircut ever like it's not look look i grew up at an asian dad i got shitty bowl cuts as a kid right no stranger to the the immigrant giving their kid a shitty asian bowl cut this thing's next level it's straight up like a mushroom cut it's very mm-hmm. distracting in every scene she's in yeah um, just real quick if you've ever seen a picture of musician gus dapperton picture that haircut but worse <laughs> <laughs> It's yeah, it's choppy. And this whole thing is basically she talks to him, she speaks very cryptedly, asks, you know, it what is even real? And it's she it seems like she's having an existential crisis. And he's just kind of bared with her and he's like, "All right, man, I don't know what you're talking about, but <laughs> this is good talk, I guess, kid." Uh, and then she turns up missing. And it, you know, you start to understand that he has to some extent a relationship with her mother, whether it be a friendship. It's all kind of these inklings of things that'll come up later but you're not really super clued into to who's related to who and what the relationships are uh and so she she jumps ship she runs away and it's she writes in blood the empty man made me do it on her mirror and that kind of sets up the framing for like taylor said this entire investigation second arc which is you know teenagers going missing inviting the empty man in uh and going missing and being chased by i don't remember the main character's name which is kind of funny given the what will happen later but mm-hmm. um i think this is this is fine i think if i have the three of them lined up i think this is maybe the least interesting and i think this is the stuff that gets marketed a lot uh the teenagers are 
fine. I, I don't know that I necessarily have any attachment to any of them or feel bad at all when they die. I think the shower sequence specifically, or I guess it's a steam room where one of the girls who lives the longest and actually talks is pretty scary. Um, and I think the imagery that we get of her being attacked by the empty man, but later being shown to be actually killing herself, it's, it's a little blurry of what's actually happening. Okay. It's a pretty scary kill. Otherwise, the kids are kind of... I don't know. I, I don't see a lot of reason to have those other kills in there. And I think maybe pad out the runtime. Um, and I think generally I'm a little confused as to like their role in Empty Man coming back. And I, I think we'll talk about this a little bit later. But I have some confusion of like, you know, we get some understanding of Paul and our cop and their their roles in this. But I'm, I'm a little confused as to why it is that we're summoning the Empty Man or how it is that the Pontifex group, you know, do they benefit from this? What is it that they see in bringing the Empty Man around? So we can get into that into the third arc. Second arc, I'm okay on. I think it's fun that we get to learn about the, the main character and the girl's mom. But otherwise, a little iffy for me. Yeah, yeah. let me hop in here. Yeah, let good. Get him, Hank. Tell him. Yeah, so second arc, uh, you know, grizzled cop, blah, 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 and also high school students. Um, so this one is the one that, you know, I kind of mentioned. It's not bad, but it is middling compared to that opening sequence that like i said it's all of the great parts of the ritual without all of the bad parts of the ritual um and the ending i also think is good but we won't get into it but uh, there are a number of reasons i think this is middling um first of all it it lingers a little bit too long in um just kind of campy slasher territory for my taste you know there's a bunch of teenagers doing stupid shit and they get killed and you know i like campy slashers but i like um you know like like as like a drinking game or something like i like i, I enjoy the nightmare on elm street movies a, a ton but i don't i you know i don't like them the same way i like hereditary or the witch you know yeah. or something yeah. like that and i feel like this movie in its other parts has a lot of the quality of those other movies i mentioned you know hereditary the witch it makes you think a little bit it makes you feel like genuine unease but teenagers doing stupid and shit and getting killed it's you know it's 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 tried and true you can mm -hmm. do it. You can throw it in a horror movie. Horror fans are going to like it, but that doesn't make it, like, especially compelling, which is kind of a shame when the rest of the film is so compelling. Um, I also, to kind of take a step back and speculate on the, uh, the writing of the film a little bit, uh, so it, it, at the end of the movie, it becomes clear that the teenagers introduced in this part are somehow kind of like integral to this overarching plot of bringing the empty man back um specifically amanda uh this girl that uh the, the main character uh is is like kind of a father figure for during this part blah 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 you know but anyway that is actually kind of one of the weaker plot points for me the fact that these high school students are so integral because i don't think there's any reason they needed to be high school students for yeah. this plot and i think it makes it a lot harder to explain with them being high school students because i'm like how the hell was amanda like in in communication with these people you know apparently like going and like helping them like do these things why is she so integral in the main character's life because you know spoiler alert he was created by you know this group of people um but uh you know i don't think having them be high schoolers added anything to it and on 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 a first watch i was kind of like maybe there's something i'm missing on a second watch i'm not convinced there's something i'm missing but given the knowledge that this is based on a graphic novel 
Uh, I have my suspicions that it may have been aimed originally at kind of like an older young adult audience. Mm. Um, and sometimes when you like write graphic novels like that, like the, probably like the closest analog I can think of is like uh, manga in Japan, how they have like shonen and, and seinen designations where like it's designated either at like young adults or, or, or adults. And like if you if you were aiming it at young adults, I could totally understand why you would have high school people playing a large role and i kind of suspect that that might have been some of the motivation behind them because it really just doesn't make sense otherwise um like there's not really a plot reason for them to be that way that said i do think the sequence is actually pretty good despite being middling um i think the cinematography is good uh i think uh, i do like the kind of grizzled ex-cop main character guy like he's kind of a trope but uh you know he, he he's he, he's kind of nice to have you know like he uh He's a bit more savvy and smart than your average horror main character. And they show that off in this segment. Um, you know, he kind of goes around, gets the information. I like that. Um, but yeah, overall, you know, this, this one, it kind of, it kind of lingers in, a, in, in slasher territory a little bit, which is fine. I like slashers, but it's just not really elevated to the same height as the rest of the movie. Also, the steam room kill, while it is scary, I, uh, I'm kind of like... Don't tell me someone's a high schooler and show their tits to me. Like I, I, I can't. Uh, yeah. I, I, like, like, like I know the actress is over eighteen. Like I don't. You know, she she should be welcome to show her body on screen. I just I'm always like, if you're going to insist someone is a high schooler, like just don't sexualize them for me. Um, just as a yeah. personal preference. Uh, not not a huge detraction from the film because they are ostensibly actually 18 years old. Like there's nothing like illegal going on. It's just like you get a finger wag for that one. You know, not, 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 not like, a, yeah, I'm not going to knock your rating down, but you get a finger wag. Um, but anyway, I spent a lot of time shooting on that. I do think that, uh, you know, overall, like kind of having the investigation sequence is kind of fun. It's a, it's a trope of horror, you know, they, uh, the, the, the genre is pretty closely related to mystery. So I think it's a good inclusion, um, and I think it's, it's uh, you know, a good part of kind of like the plot structure. There's just like a little bit too much lingering in this kind of middle ground of, you know, slasheriness that I don't think served the movie that well. Yeah, I, th I think I think I agree with both you guys on, on most of your main points. I think the second act is, I mean, the trouble is, is that that first act was so good and so big, right? We saw the monster already, right? We already saw the empty man. And that it's it's right off the bat, the second act is going to feel like a bit of a come down from that, right? Like there's just no way around that when you're opening up so big. Um, and, and that said, I think the biggest problems with it is that you know it opens up and we see this middle-aged guy and we're like is this is this the same guy as before and then this girl this teenage girl clearly she's not the same person but she's talking about people who have just died and it's like are these the same people and it turns out not real i mean it just you're just wondering who the hell are these people and we've already gotten such dramatic stuff happening in that first little bit that 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 prologue that um i think if i had one critique of the movie it would be we can't do that. We got to connect. We got to be at least one of the same main characters from that first prologue to the second bit, just to keep some emotional stuff going. Because when everything starts happening, this teenage girl, there's no stakes because we have no idea who she is. We don't really care much about her. We don't know anything about her. So that, that, that part is a little bit of a downer for me, but 
we quickly get out of that. We right, we have that yeah. initial scene. We're doing this teenage thing, and it's a horror movie, and we have all the cops are useless. Everybody seems to have no idea what's going on, and then we have this ex-cop who was a uh, he was a detective in Chicago or something, right? And now he's in this small town, maybe it was St. Louis. I don't know. Oh, he's but undercover. Undercover, exactly. So we have—it's great. You have a horror movie where you have someone that can actually figure things out and actually has a sense of self-preservation, and so we get to see him learn about all of this, all of this stuff. Um, and so I, it, it, the second half of that second portion of the, of this three kind of main arcs that we've, I've split it into, um, that really worked for me. Once we got over this initial confusion of who the hell these people are. Then I was in it because then I loved being the the vehicle for understanding the rest of this movie is through someone that maybe not the sharpest tool in the shed, but he's not an idiot. Right. And mm-hmm. and he's willing to entertain a crazy conspiracy or something else. And that just is a great avenue to explore what turns out to be a crazy fucking conspiracy. Um, and so that that gets us into, I think, the third portion. Oh, wait. Is there anything else you guys want to yeah. say on that second portion? Yeah, go One ahead. One really important thing that I forgot to mention. Um, they have these, uh, like, text cards that play over the film. They go, day one. Very reminiscent of, like, Zelda Majora's Mask. But in the intro sequence, they do day one, day two, day three. And that, that three-day cycle is very important. But I thought on both first and second rewatch, it's really cool how they do all three days in the prologue. And then when you get to the, the second sequence with this ex-cop character, it goes on for a bit. And then they flash day one at you. And it's, it's really kind of cool and striking when they do that. Yeah. Um, I think that that's actually like kind of one of the high points of the second sequence is that they kind of tell you there's some sort of a cycle going on even before you know about it, and it, it works for them. Um, and on a, a rewatch, it doesn't like break down. Like even though you know it's a, a cycle, like it's still a cool visual effect. Um, and I feel like that one little thing does kind of like elevate what's going on in, a, in an otherwise relatively middling section is just getting that kind of like, whoa, what? In the middle of just some fairly average horror action yeah we're still doing fucked up shit don't you worry we're just got a little down moment and we're straight back to the fucked up shit yeah hank i'm surprised that you compared that to the i mean the the structure of having the days overlapped to majora's mask when i think the more clear comparison was last week's review when we have you know we have day one until the blackout uh of the in the heights i think that's a much more apt comparison you could have made i knew you were gonna do it i knew it (laughs) I'm, I'm not even going to respond to that. Taylor, take us <laughs> on to the third segment. Wait, can I do one more thing? One more scene yeah, that I ahead, really, go really like. Go ahead, go ahead. I would be super bummed out if I didn't bring out this scene for the second part, which is when I am... Am I an idiot? What is his name? What is? Do you remember the cop's name? Paul. Uh, James LaSombra. Paul LaSombra. Something was Paul, LaSombra. Paul was the first one. So James is the second act guy, right? The cop. James? Yeah. Okay. So anyways, James is doing his own investigation. He goes back to the bridge where the kids are, and he finds a bottle, and he blows it and kind of invites the empty man back. You know, invites the empty man to his... Alerts it to his presence, I guess. Um, And there's this really cool scene where it's like a fall day or like a spring day, and you have a lot of like cicadas, and you have a lot of just ambient noise, which is something where if you're either watching a movie, or if you're just outside, you know, you're, you're very accustomed to hearing a lot of random noises that make up the outside world and you kind of forget about them and you tune them out but then as he blows on the bottle and starts figuring out like oh my god did i just like what's going on were the kids here and he sees the great open and it cuts 
all of the noise out and goes completely silent as you see him standing on the bridge. And it's so jarring hearing because you, you didn't even realize before that this was such a noisy scene. They don't ramp up noise for no reason, right? It's just the noise of the outside world. And having an absence of that is really, really scary and puts you on edge. So I thought that scene was super effective with him, you know, doing his whole investigation on the bridge. And what yeah. was great? Oh, go ahead, Hank. Oh, I was just going to say really effective use of really loud silence. Yeah. 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 And what was great, too, is the way the character responded to it. Right. Because it, the sound drops off. And so we're all like, whoa. And he goes, whoa. And he like yeah. looks around and it was it was perfect because you, he was interacting with these horror elements that often the characters in the movie don't interact with themselves. Right. It's just for the benefit of us, the audience, the sound blasts and all that stuff. Right. But this was the character interacting with it. And that just made it scarier and established him as a more like realistic. This is just a regular dude interacting with just utter nonsense. Just Looney Tunes. Crazy shit is happening. And he is along for the ride. And that's, you know, that's the best part is that he's he's got this like nose of a of a detective where he just can't let something go. There's a, there's a, there's a thing in him. But when he says, you know, when everybody else would say, nah, I'm not going to go in there. I'm not going to open that door. He's like, well, I got to see. I got I got to know. Right. And so we just get to be the fly on the wall to follow him along. So I actually I at the beginning, I wasn't the beginning of the second portion I, I wasn't in love with the cop character but by the time this scene on the bridge comes around keegan i am 100 percent. he is our hero for better for worse it's going to lead <laughs> us into this brave new fucking world whatever's happening so let's let's get into that brave new world let's do it the third act which i call the da vinci code jason Bourne act um <laughs> keegan you've let us off before hank why don't you let us off so let's just assume that we're we're somewhere and the transition is not hard it's not clear but there's some point at which we stop being teeny bop weird you know high school horror to proper out of this world horror so just kind of pick a point at which you want to start going and, and, and let us know what did you think of that final act where we where the curtain comes down and we see everything okay so i'm gonna first of all uh, kind of toss aside your Da Vinci Code, Jason Bourne thing. Go ahead. Uh, because I, I have I have a comparison I like more. So fuck <laughs> you. No, no, get rid of um, it. Yeah. So uh, you know you you get you get James Lasombra. He's this kind of grizzled dude. He's he's a cop, but he's an ex-cop. You know, he's kind of a, a roguish character, one might say. And he kind of you know, he's he's coming to the Pontifex Institute. He's sitting in the back row. He's asking you know like the tough questions to people out back. You know, kind of doing some intimidation stuff. Um, and this whole sequence, to me, is really reminiscent of the writing of uh, Laird Barron, who writes a lot of my favorite uh, horror stories. Um, but kind of a trope of Laird Barron's is that he will have kind of noir-type stuff mixed with horror. Well, he'll have, like, a mob enforcer or someone like that that's getting entangled in these kind of cosmic, horrific events. Um, and, you know, like they'll, they'll be doing this sort of investigation, but in this kind of thuggish way, you know, kind of like, you know, like putting the muscle onto someone a bit. So it shared a lot of it with that. And the fact that you eventually get that cosmic payoff that you normally don't really get in like a horror movie. Most horror movies have something a bit more physical and tangible. And there's a little bit of that here, but not too much. Um, if, if, if you're into that sort of mixture of kind of like that grizzled, like thuggish uh, investigation with that like more, more, more high idea cosmic horror stuff, this section I think is really good. And it's something that I read a lot of, 
but I do not see a lot of on film. Um, so I think it's really, really cool. Um, and I think that they, it, it, this is, I think, maybe the longest sequence in the movie, um, but they keep it dynamic enough that it works. So, you know, he, ha- he has, you know, some, uh, some sequences where he's like in the, in the Pontifex Institute, he's talking to people and they're just, just spouting, you know, new age nonsense at him. And he's like, ah, oh, fuck that. I'm going to go ask one of the kids you've indoctrinated about it. I'm from you know, San Francisco, whatever. I'm from San Francisco. <laughs> We're going to get back to I'm, I'm from San Francisco. But, like, he'll do that, and then you'll have a creepy scene where he, like, sneaks into the basement, and he's in this dark room, and he sees some sort of a ritual happening. And you're like, so you get kind of like this play between mystery and horror. And it goes back to some mystery. You know, he, like, kidnaps someone or whatever and, you know, asks the tough questions. And then he goes finds some people out in the woods that are by a bonfire, and they all do some creepy shit. And so they really kind of they play with the tension really well in this, which I feel like a lot of mystery stuff can kind of fail to do. They, they really kind of rely on you. Oh, there's a dog. Um, sorry, that, that totally derailed me. Um, <laughs> but uh, a lot of mystery stuff for me kind of uh, they rely on you just like trying to solve the mystery yourself. But for a movie like this with a cosmic payoff, um, kind of necessarily you can't solve the mystery for yourself it is supposed to be big and unknowable so playing with the tension in that way where they're kind of hopping back and forth between mystery and horror i think was a fairly clever way to handle it because they're still kind of drawing you in with the mystery but they've made peace with the fact that they can't really explain the whole thing without ruining kind of like the grand cosmic nature of the whole thing Mm. so i really like that personally yeah, um, that that bit of the camp, right, where he sees that they have a file on him and it's empty, and he he just has this great reaction, which is not. I mean, you can tell he's afraid, but he just says, "Oh, that's funny. You guys are funny." Like he says it out loud to no one in particular, and it's great. Like there's still a defiance there. There's still a "fuck you, this is weird" thing there, and it really helps bring the audience in, right? Because mm-hmm. we're you know we're not a part of this crazy nonsense, and so to have like just some kind of defiance there. Oh, it worked. It worked so well. So well. What else? What else to think about that third act, Hank? Um, yeah. So, like, I think I've said a lot of what I felt about it. I think it played with the tension really well. I think that the, the bonfire scene that we've mentioned, uh, I think, is one of the coolest scenes in the movie. They so really scary. make use of their lights versus darks. And the thing that Keegan brought up earlier with the kind of like the standoff followed by a chase, they do that with a crowd here, which is just bonkers just really really fun stuff and one thing i really like is when the crowd starts chasing him the main character goes oh hell no and he just books it out of there and like, yeah. i like that because that's like something i can connect with you know, not not being like oh should i stay should i try no you just say oh hell no and get out of there because that's the only thing that doesn't result in you being mobbed and dying um, mm-hmm. they, it's, it's so for our listeners that haven't watched the movie, I don't know why you haven't watched it, given the amazing <laughs> things we've been saying about it. But if you haven't watched it, he's across the river and there's the crowd. They're performing some ritual around a big bonfire. They're all wearing black hoodies and, you know, it's a little black block Antifa kind of look. And they uh, he 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 doesn't know if they've looked if they've recognized him. They know he's even there. Right. He's in the woods kind of hiding out. And then they all stop and kind of look at him and he's like what the fuck like you can tell there's a little little realization on his face and then he takes a step back and they take a step towards him and he's like nope and just and just turns and starts running and they start chasing him. but that that like nope 
that was just that was just it, I don't know about you guys, but for me, that was exactly what I was thinking as an audience member, that if mm -hmm. I'm watching this and a crowd of people in the woods starts taking a step towards me, nah, I'm done. I'm, I'm over it. I'm totally whatever it takes to get away from this. I have no interest in learning more at this point. I'm just 100 percent against whatever this is. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I feel like we've said the good things about the third act, or at least I've said the good things. You know, they play with the tension well. They have a good cosmic payoff. They don't try and over explain it because it's. You know, th there are parts of it that are knowable, right? You know, like the, the overarching concepts you can understand. I, they're they're rooted in, in someone's philosophy that I haven't I haven't read the primary sources for. Um, but I, I think they do a good job of not overplaying their hand of having some like real philosophical roots. You know, they're like we're going to play with it, but we're going to keep it mysterious, and I like that. And they yeah. had some good scares while they're at it. But I want to hear what Keegan has to say. I've yeah, Keegan. Them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so first of all, Taylor, I reject your Da Vinci Code Jason Bourne three arc structure. I oh, that did not is, work out well. Okay, no, because this is the this is you, this third arc is not it's not cohesive as one piece, right? It's it's two pieces. You have your Pontifex, your your cult, and then you go into your your David Lynch surrealism, and that breaks into mm. the the second part of it. So I'll do the cult part first, but I want to go back to that scare you were talking about because I think one of the things this movie does that is a really smart play on kind of a conventional scare that we see fairly often, but is used to good effect here is both when he's interviewing the first girl, the girl that we later see as a high schooler naked, when he's talking to her in his car. And later when we have the bonfire scene, there's a really cool jump cut where, you know, someone's on edge. They're looking back and forth. They're checking their surroundings. And then they're looking back at the people that they're nervous about. In the instance of the high school girl, she's looking at a bunch of kids. And at one point, she sees the empty man behind them, cuts back to her conversation with James. And then she cuts back and finally sees they're all went from standing to sitting crisscross. And they're all looking directly at her now, as opposed to just talking amongst themselves. And the other one is when we're at the bonfire, he sees them dancing around the bonfire. And then when he looks back, the bonfire's out and they're staring at him. There's no fire. And they've instantly all turned to flip and look at him. And it's, oh, you just, you pucker instantly when you see it. It's so, so scary. And then you couple that with the fact that they're gonna chase and it's, oh, it just, it makes my whole butthole eat itself. It's so scary. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, as far as the, I guess I'll talk. Yeah, it just consumes itself. <laughs> Fucking Starlack um, over here. Gross. Um, so for the cult stuff, I think oh, this is. Oh, I'm where the gross really one. You in. brought this up. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I, go ahead. I brought it on. The imagery Keegan. is is too much of the Starlack pit. Keegan but has a Starlack butthole. <laughs> this, add it to the wiki, guys. Add it to the rotating reels lore. <laughs> It's canon now. <laughs> no, but so this this cult stuff is is fun, and I really like this whole sleuthin piece. I think technically this blurs the line of the whole investigation with the high school students, but I think it's fun, and I think I think it does. It's almost self aware to the point, right? Because I think the movie does bring up some stuff of like, oh, this is esoteric and cosmic, and it's very you know self reflective. And what does it mean to be a human? What is even your permanence as a human? Something we talked about in our Ghost in the Shell review right that scene where the guy's confused of even what he is and if his reality really exists to him um but it kind of mocks that in a cheeky way when he's talking to all the people at pontifex and the girl that gives him the clipboard there's some some questions that are kind of interesting but also like 
is the scientific method a form of oppression? And you're like, that's just fucking stupid. That's like, <laughs> dumb. Um, and so and when he talks with the, like, the Scientology pastor guy, he like, like you guys had said, he kind of calls him on his shit a little bit when the guy's like espousing a bunch of stupid new agey, like fluff, basically. Like it's all, maybe it ties out, but it's also, I think this is not where the movie wants to, to land its punches, right? So it kind of makes fun of it and rolls it into this, like, this is Scientology, this is silly, and it makes you kind of distance from it. But later on a rewatch, you're like, this is kind of real, but it's also kind of knows that it has to warm you up to these ideas before it really shows you to them, it sh shows them to you later on when we get into our crazy stuff. Um, so yeah, no, I, I think this whole investigation stuff is, is really fun. I think sleuthing around and seeing the bottle blow and is someone there? Show yourself. And is did they see him or did they see a version of him underneath the stairs? All of that starts calling into question like, oh, what's is this real what we're being shown? And you start thinking like, yes, James is a fun narrator and that like he's relatable and he says goofy shit when scary stuff is happening. But also like, is he a reliable narrator? Like, can we really trust what we're seeing from this guy at this point? It starts calling that into question. So maybe I'll save some of my late, late stuff with like the finale for later. But Taylor, I'll pass it to you now with, with kind of like transitioning out of the, the high school stuff. Yeah, so that I, I think that there's actually four parts of this movie. There there's and I was gonna I Now you, you do. You, you <laughs> saw my you saw my surprise coming before I before I said it, which was one we got the Bhutan thing, then we got the investigation, then we got this kind of what I've been calling the Da Vinci Code Jason Bourne section, and then we have the fourth, the the end, which is total philosophy mindfuck and that to me really really shows how intellectually good this movie is because this whole time we've had this cop this everyman cop that is our reliable uh everyman insight into this crazy nonsense that's going on and then he becomes entirely unreliable and then we wonder if he was unreliable the entire time and so it calls into question things that we liked because they were realistic because they were reliable well now they're no longer reliable and so that was incredible to me and the moment it sort of began to happen for me was actually that scene at the pontifex institute or whatever whatever that church type thing was and i loved stephen root I, I always loved stephen root he does this is the perfect role for him where he's the creepy kind of prophet cult leader kind of dude and I gotta say, I don't know if you guys have any experience with, with cults or with uh, alternative spiritual things. I have a little bit myself, and this, you know, it, it was it was like the the it looked like the scene was shot in a Masonic temple or some sort of, of those sort of fraternal organizations. Um, so that part wasn't super reliable. But having been on silent meditation retreats and hung out with people that weren't trying to summon an evil entity, but were really, really big on their parna and you not fucking with their parna, there was a lot of the stuff that was similar. And so when when he when that cop is filling out the initial little checklist right at the very beginning, talking to the receptionist, and there's all these nonsense questions on it, and he says, "What is this?" And uh, she's like, oh, it's just a thing you fill out in the first step on your journey. And he goes, no, no, no. I, I know what this is. I mean, and he gestures with his hands for everything. He goes, what is this? What is the bigger <laughs> thing? that I, I'm well aware of what the checklist is. Don't worry about that portion of it. And that, and that, that spoke to something in me having been in these sorts of uh, – 
alternative spiritual communities and having met people who, who spent their lives in this kind of world. And they have a weirdness about them that was perfectly captured. And so I've never, you know, had an interaction with a cult or anything like that, but I imagine it's just the same thing I've experienced times 10, right? There's just this dead eyed sort of oddness about it. And I thought they captured that perfectly. And then when you see Stephen Root and he's somehow the leader, but not you get the sense that he's not the real leader, right? He's, he's a high level dude, but there's somebody above him. He's so good at this creepy sort of fathery kind of character where he's telling you things, he's giving you advice, he's explaining things to you, and you think he's creepy, you think he's out there, but there's a little bit of truth in what he's saying. There's a little nugget of what he's saying that you're like, well, I can't argue with that. And so that to me was was the break from when we went from just a cop investigation where he's just solving the crime of disappearing teens to now, Everything seems fucked. Everything seems beyond. You know, there's no coming back from the things he's learned, right? It's totally going to distort his worldview the rest of his life. This character, um, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna lead us into this last bit, this final bit. And so for our audience, if you, if you haven't watched the movie and you're not gonna watch the movie, I'm gonna try to explain what happens. And basically, what 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 we learn is. That in that initial scene in Bhutan, when they find this multi-armed skeleton sort of thing, um, that was the empty man at some level. That was some being, whether it had been human once or, or was not from this plane of existence. And when these hikers, uh, without their uh, Bhutan guide like they were supposed to have, stumbled upon this they the one guy uh he heard a little something and just that hearing of something from this skeleton from this empty man was enough and so kind of the the cosmology of what's going on is that um the the, the pontifex institute is sort of a, a new agey continuation of this thing that uh, some Buddhist monks in Bhutan have been doing hundreds of years before, as all new agey things, meditation <laughs> things are. And turns out these uh, monks, and now the Pontifex Institute, have discovered that uh, our thoughts and our consciousness have not, uh, they're not confined to our physical corporeal bodies, that there are other dimensions, other planes in which our thoughts travel to. And the inverse of that, of course, is that things from those other planes and dimensions can then travel back to our physical dimension. And so it's hard, it's hard to wrap your head around, but the idea basically is that some consciousness, some intelligence from this other plane, the noosphere, the Pontifex calls it, which is the worst name ever. So this So stupid. Th but this entity from the noosphere, for lack of a better term, has begun to communicate with humans on this plane. In addition to that, the Pontifex Institute has figured out how to uh, perform rituals whereby they can summon, they can create a corporeal physical manifestation of things from the noosphere. And so in the fourth act, we begin to learn that our cop hero is not a cop hero. He's not your every man. He was never undercover in St. Louis or Chicago or wherever wherever he was, he was in fact summoned by the Pontifex Institute, brought forth into this world because they needed 
a human being, a physical body that never had its own consciousness. So they gave him some little short sob story about him being a cop, having an affair, whatever else. None of that was true. That was just something to get his physical body here. And now that he is here, they're going to replace his consciousness with that consciousness from the other plane, from the Noah sphere. He's going to become the empty man. That's what happens in the, f the final fourth scene. This guy becomes the physical manifestation of some fucking demonic shit. So I know, I know we're already running late, but this is such a complex movie. I want to talk about that last bit, the last, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes of the movie. Hank, let's, let's start with you. What did you think about all the philosophy from all this, about all the cosmology? Did it seem ridiculous to you, or did there seem like, just like when Stefan Root was talking to us, there was a little kernel of truth, a little kernel of something there? Yeah, so I'm going to... I'm going to avoid the question a little bit, but I am going to address it. <laughs> um, so I I, I, I I step away from questions of uh, cosmology a little bit myself, you know, like what is and is not, um, because, you know, I, I essentially believe that the world is unknowable. There's something they say in the movie that does ring true for me, where it's like nothing is real. Even if something is real, we can't know anything about it. Even if we can know something about it, knowledge cannot be communicated. Um, and I don't know if like I totally believe in all of that, um, but I do at least a little bit believe like it's very very difficult to know anything about anything. And I think cosmology is just like a little bit too abstract for me to be making any statements about what I believe because I'm not convinced I believe anything. You know, it it is or it is not, and I'm never going to get an answer there um, unless I die and someone provides me an answer at the pearly gates. But I'm not <laughs> entirely convinced that's going to happen. Um, but so anyway, I'm not going to necessarily say like if I think there's a kernel of truth or not. Um, what I will say is that I think that for someone that has engaged with a lot of literature that I think has some similar themes, um, they have constructed uh, some like fairly kind of a fairly convincing cosmology, um, you know, like it, at least within their world. Um, it, so, like, the way I was reading it uh, was that, you know, like, physical reality should not really be thought of as reality so much as it's kind of like this consensus reality that humans agree to. And mm -hmm. the no-sphere is kind of a greater reality where there are not just humans present. Um, there are other things. But so, anyway, the reason that the humans need to create this guy for the, this other being to come into is because the general human consensus doesn't really believe that this thing exists so they need to in some way kind of create a space with it for it within the human space um so like even if you don't think of it as as like an objective reality like they're essentially saying like they're like they're able to through like combined effort create like room in the human consensus for this to start happening and i think that's kind of a cool thought you know, like a bunch of people can just believe something so hard that it's true, and then that can ripple out once the empty man inhabits it. Um, I think there mm. are kind of analogs for that in the real world because, you know, like, like, you know, truth is kind of on some level, uh, you know, like what people believe it to be. You know, like if, if the news says something enough, like people will start saying that and it will, for a lot of intents and purposes, be the truth. And I feel like this is kind of like a cosmological extension of that. You know, people believe that this guy exists enough and so he will become, you know, something that exists within the human consensus. And then from there, they can more easily extend to the empty man being able to kind of step into the the space they've created 
I think that's kind of a cool concept. Really like that. Um, regardless of if I believe there's anything going on like that in the real world. Um, really like that. And uh, I particularly like it because I think it uh, is really reminiscent of stuff written by an author that I quite like named Thomas Ligotti. Um, that he, his work asks a lot of questions. Uh, actually, if you've seen True Detective Season 1, it draws really heavily on Thomas Ligotti's work. Um, but uh, he, he, in his writing, it's all fiction, except for his book of philosophy called The Conspiracy Against the Human Race. Um, but uh, it's all fiction. But he asks, like, a lot of questions about, like, kind of, like, what the human experience is and means. Um, and essentially, he seems to think it is nothing and it means nothing. And it's essentially just, like, some greater cosmic being, like, imagining suffering for its own amusement. I don't know if I agree with that, but it's, you know, it's an interesting premise. And I think this movie um, kind of it, it exists in like a similar framework to that. And I think they introduce it fairly well without like diving into the specific mechanics of it too much, which is what causes that sort of thing to fall apart. Because I think like if you're agreeing that like what we know as reality is kind of like based on a, a human consensus, which is kind of what this movie implies with them being able to manufacture a person through belief. Um, I think that that can, once you start trying to like explain it enough, like, you know, you have to start dealing with questions about like, you know, like what about the people that don't believe in any of this? And it starts to become this whole thing that you've explained it too much and it's just too complex to possibly captivate the viewer. And I think they avoided that pretty well, but I think they did kind of toe the line at the very end uh, with Amanda's kind of like long-winded explanation of uh, where James came from. Um, so I really like this final thing. I really like this cosmology they've built. Um, but I feel like, you know, once again, the, the high schoolers, why were they there? You know, like it's, <laughs> it's almost more compelling without the high schooler explanation of it. And that's my, my, you know, I, I would call it two cents, but it was a rant. <laughs> Keegan, what'd you think? Man, I... This whole thing does just a really good job of tying everything together. And I don't think I'm going to be quite as literary in my 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 thoughts on this as, as my co-hosts were. But I just think this is a really interesting way of, of tying together what seemed like three completely disconnected threads as you're watching through it otherwise. Um, I mean, we have seen a scene with the man in the hospital. We saw the kids go to visit him. It's completely unclear why he's there. And just the connection that... Like I said, two hours later, this is Paul, right? We've we've heard inklings, we've heard a nurse say that he's be he's he's been in a comatose state for twenty three years. Someone's funding it. Um, it it's it's yeah. I just think it's a really cool way of tying it all together. Um, I think I'm a little confused though as to like the purpose of this entire institute and like the I guess Bhutanese people and their connection to the Empty Man. So. Taylor, I think you had said that, like, the purpose of what they were doing in building a tulpa in James is that he is going to become the empty man. But I've, I have I kind of read it that he's just the conduit and that Paul was a conduit and he kept that signal open so that the empty man could exist in our plane. And he, you know, Pontifex, I was reading, is, is I think, Latin for bridge builder. So they're, built, they're, they're building bridges for the empty man to have a pathway here. So... Once Paul dies, James steps in as the new conduit, and we have now a new pathway for the empty man to exist in our reality. But I just, I don't understand what the desire is for having the empty man here. Like, 
I mean, he's compelling. Maybe they they see him as a deity in their in their new agey religion. But for me, it just seems like it's all a means to an end. It, it's more of the journey, right? Like I think we're more interested in the idea that they built the tulpa. And I think James's existence as a tulpa and them using his despair as the the fear and kind of the the reason for him to exist and and giving him a compelling reason for himself to believe in his own existence is far more interesting than even the existence of the empty man. And I almost feel like, you know, having the empty man is almost a bit of a crutch. And I think it's the crutch that the second arc leans on. Like, really, that's where we see the most of his presence is when he's, you know, terrifying these high school kids. I almost think it would be more interesting if we have a version of this movie where we just leave it completely open to your thought of like, what is this other world? What is it that they want to bring from the other world by building these bridges? Because it almost seems like if they're going through all this effort to build these these bridges and these tulpas, it must be something really cool that they want from the other side to bring over. So I don't know. I, you know I, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think they should even take it a step further. Um, and I, I just talked about how I kind of like the cosmology, but it kind of breaks down when you start explaining it too much. I think mm-hmm. that they can keep a lot of it about kind of like the nature of our reality, how it's kind of like focus and concentration kind of creates it to some extent, um, but cut out kind of the external part of the cosmology. And I think like a really effective horror movie, um, and this would kind of break down some key aspects of the movie, but I think a really effective movie would be some people that manufactured this tulpa, you know, created James out of nothing just to see if they could because then his existence is utterly meaningless. You know, there's not like some greater purpose. And I feel like that, first of all, you know, like I believe people doing things just to see if they could. Um, and second of all, it negates the, the need for you to like explain like, why do they want the empty man? He's just going to kill everyone. They're part of everyone, you know, like, it, like it, th- that can be confusing, but I think it would be just as scary if they just made James just to be like, can we? <laughs> we can. And you know, cause yeah. it, that's, it's, uh, you know, that's just my my two cents on it. No, absolutely, no. I agree. I think this the existence of James as an art, like a completely artificial, created by other humans being, is like the most far and away fascinating thing that they introduce in the whole movie. And I think the Empty Man kind of cheapens it. And I think like he's a fun monster. I think the I don't want to call it a gimmick. I think the the way that he pursues people in this whole chase mentality is really fun. But I don't know. I think his his presence is not necessary. That's but, interesting. Yeah. So I, I, I agree with you, with you Keegan. I, I think that James was a really interesting character, right? You have a character that's got to grapple with the fact that they're not really a character. They're not really a person. They're this little tiny coat of paint on a, a body, basically, right? They're not an in-depth human character. Um, but for me, I, I mean, I one of the things I really came away with at the end of the movie, both times, first and second time was I want a sequel and I want my sequel to explain to me what the Pontifex Institute is, right? It's getting orders, whispers from this alien, right? That formerly was a a body that was not able to move or anything. And now seems to be a fully movable talking human being, right? I want to see this organization because they have all of these people I'm assuming that all these people are somewhat brainwashed by the whisper. So not a cult brainwash. I mean that they're somehow being controlled, right? There's even a, a bit where the teenage girl says, you could think of him as a virus, 
right? So that I, I, I'm kind of going with that, that this is a malevolent thing that's infecting people. And the minute they're infected, they have no choice in the matter anymore, right? There's still something of them left, but they're not able to can stop themselves from doing any of this nonsense. And so I want to see how the Pontifex organization is run, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm a business guy because they got all these people I want to see how the payroll's paid, right? I want to see how this alien manages the accounting for everything. I want to see what he's organized. Like, what is the purpose of all of this, right? And so I like the idea that the people have no clue. They have no clue and they have no ability to change or influence anything. The minute they've heard those whispers, they're at the mercy of this other thing. And it's got its own designs that, you know, they even say, oh, we'll, we'll never know, right? But there's no way to know what it actually wants or what it's actually for. I want to explore that sort of nihilism because it seems like a negative thing, right? It's just killing teenagers under a bridge. It seems like that's not a constructive purpose, right? So if it's just out and out nihilism, just to destroy everything, just to do it, fine. That, that's great. But I want, to, I want to explore that more. And that was so compelling to me that I almost lost interest in the cop. I was like, this, it wasn't even like... It, it's not like when he's having this realization that that of, of what he is that he's a tulpa that he's not really a person that he was summoned from the nether i i was like well sorry man that was crazy right like on to the next thing like sorry dude you're not even really a person you don't even really have a family that all this shit that you've created that's just nothingness and so that was the i want to say the most compelling part to me was that just sheer nihilism, sheer darkness. I mean, we have the scene where we have all these, uh, I don't know what I call them, monks, but these very devout members of the Pontifex Institute sitting and meditating in what looks like a basic training barracks, and they're meditating at what seems to be just a poster on the wall, and it's a black rectangle. Let's dive into that. Let's dive into that just sheer nothingness and darkness. I uh, reminded me of Dormammu, Right. Like, that's what I was thinking. I was like, just nothingness for the sake of nothingness. And these people are utterly infected by this and they have no ability to uh, hold out against it at all. So that that was really compelling to me. So the fact that you focused in on this cop, this Tulpa guy and wanted to know more about, you know, that was compelling to you. His suffering for me, I was like, no, that's done. I, he's, he's nothing. He is nothing. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. He's out of here. Let's get on to the next big thing. I think the reason it attracted me so much is, and again, spoilers for a show that's been out for three years, but I really, really like, uh, love Twin Peaks The Return. And I think so much of that is this idea that, like, we have not only an, an original individual, but we now have a doppelganger of them that comes from another dimension and is now, a, like, a, a equally existing part of them that is evil. But to counteract that, we build a tulpa of the original person, which is just an absolute blank slate and this really cool imagery of like a golden ball that we turn and form into a mass of a man. Like, I just think this idea of organically through your thought creating a human being is so fascinating that the empty man thing to me became weak. And I, I agree that thinking of it as a virus and like these people, it's like, what is it, like brain worms? Like you just, you can't get it out of your mind that this is the your itch. new purpose the itch, right? The ringing. It's this thing that drives you now to, I don't even want to say serve. I think that cheapens it, but to create and to allow space for the empty man to be there is really interesting. But yeah, I just was so fascinated by the Tulpa that I was like, that's, I want, this is the prequel. You can get your sequel, but I was like, I want this prequel where like for full metal alchemist style, they create a Tulpa with a transmutation circle. What did that look like? 
Yeah, okay. Yeah, well, that's the thing is that there's so many interesting parts of this movie, so many different aspects. Like, back in Bhutan, whose house was that? Did they maintain yeah. the bridge? Did they know about this shit? How did they conceive of this nonsense, right? Like, there's so many little elements that they could totally do a whole nother movie on, each one of them. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I think that uh, beyond this, got- you kind of have to see the fucking movie. You gotta watch the fucking movie, man. Yeah. All right, are we ready for our ratings? You guys ready? I was born ready. Or was I? Was I made ready? Oh! (laughs) Okay, Hank, with that, you're going first. Give us your final thoughts on The Empty Man. Yeah, so I really liked the movie. Um, I did think the middle part was kind of middling. Um, I don't think it was inessential to the movie unessential inessential i you know i i think that it was essential to the movie i think that uh it could have been trimmed a little bit and maybe massaged into something that i liked a bit better but the opening phenomenal the closing really really liked it uh it's just the sort of horror that i go in for um so with that in mind i think i think i'm going to go for 10 out of 11 really unconvincing high schoolers. Ooh, yeah. I like that. Keegan, final thoughts hey. and rating? Yeah, man, this movie, again, I kind of watched this on a whim because I had heard some stuff that this was going to be like the next big cult hit, and I just did not know that it was going to turn into such a, like, a, a movie that we'd all watch on our own and B, movie that we'd come back for a main review and, and have such an interesting conversation around. Because, again... I don't think the second watch, I agree with you guys, was necessary, but I think this conversation about the movie makes me think about it in new ways where a third watch might, you know, weighing in some of your guys' opinions and what you took out of it might push me to get a lot more out of it. So, man, this is a fascinating movie. I don't think, you know, of the movies we've reviewed, of the movies that I've seen in my entire life, I think this is truly a unique experience. I can't think of a movie that swings this hard to be this different um, and potentially is such a small budget with such a, you know, kind of, I don't want to say skeleton crew, but, you know, with, with such limited resources can try to make something so, so interesting. So I think this is just a, a must watch if you're interested in any of the things that we've brought up. If you're this far, you're, you know, you're probably have already watched the movie or uh, just here for us. So, uh, if I had to give this a rating, I'm pissed because Hank kind of stole my thunder. But I would give this eight out of ten writers who don't under or production designers who don't understand teenage haircuts. <laughs> ah, that was good. That was good. Oh yeah, I. Whew. Maybe it's us who are out of touch. <laughs> <laughs> Am I old? No. It's the children who are wrong. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, I I'm gonna give this movie. Drum roll, please. 9.99 out of 10 unnecessary sex scenes. That's what I'm yes. giving this movie. I This movie was almost perfect. I think that they needed to connect that first prologue with the second bit a, bit, uh, a little bit more. I, I think it was a little bit just confusing about who all the characters were. Um, but overall i just all of the topics i think are fascinating i think you you have you have a hard time just dismissing all of the supernatural stuff with just a wave of the hand unlike you know the 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 conjuring film series right there's a lot more meat here um and the characterizations were all pretty 
compelling right we have we have this everyman cop and what a great lens to see a horror movie through someone who's relatively rational and pretty fucking brave like that's just the best vessel the best camera angle to view a movie through um and then you 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 top it all off with just how terrifying the music was how terrifying all these different scenes were i was scared on the rewatch i i was i knew what was coming and i was still scared i knew there was a big cut or a jump happening and i was still scared knowing it was happening and then it happened then i was scared again so th- this movie was almost perfect for me just and, and and i'm not even thinking about the budget if the budget was that little then we're, we're 10 out of 10 that nothing more i can expect from this movie with that kind of budget i mean just in incredible Speaking of unnecessary sex scenes, though, have you ever needed to get at a lover just so bad that you took a piece of lingerie, put it over their face, and tried to kiss them through it? Yeah, not any sex scene. Sometimes. It's a graphic (laughs) sex scene, man. We got finger sucking, ripping shirts. Just for no reason face and it's it's completely it's at a point where you already realize this is not a real person so you're like then why why was this necessary <laughs> well and then who in that circle of summoners put the sex scene in there for this character's backstory right <laughs> it, was, like, it was the woman's daughter <laughs> no it was she somebody specifically, else no she said that she wrote it in she really specifically <laughs> she? 16 year old yeah girl. she said okay. remember that little indiscretion with my mother who do you think wrote yeah <laughs> oh my god <laughs> I didn't even piece that together. That's horrifying. Uh, yeah, see, we didn't need that. But at yeah, this that point, girl's at, got problems. But. At that point in the movie, everything's so fucked up. You're like, all right, whatever. I mean, nothing <laughs> matters anymore. So why the fuck not? All right. Anyway, okay. what are we? Uh, what are we doing next week? Yeah, that's that's actually was what I was going to turn it back to you guys. Is what's our? Are we got an A week next week. We got a B week. Well, I don't even know what we're doing. <laughs> we do have an A week. So uh, this is the actually maybe movie in China. Oh, I know. I actually have a little comment on that we'll get into next week. It's not doing very hot in China. Let me pull up the IMDb. Oh, no. I don't want you, Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Okay. I did not know this was the official name of the movie. I think this is new. Uh, We're going to be watching F9, semicolon, The Fast Saga. (laughs) That's new. Um, All right. Well, anyways, the uh, plot summary is Cypher enlists the help of Jacob. Dom's younger brother to take revenge on Dom and his team. This is a a return of Justin Lin, who directed many of the early Fast and Furious movies uh, for F9, which is uh, up there with Marvel with with movies that are hopefully going to bring back the the cinema experience. So this premiered in China already, had a great first week, had a very bad second week after John Cena admitted that Taiwan's a real country. We'll get into that whole debacle next week. It's going to be a crazy conversation. Uh, I think this is only going to be in theaters. Yeah. I've All never right. seen a Fast and Furious movie, so I'm ready for a ride. What? Never. A single one. A single one. Oh, man. you. Oh, that's terrible. That's insane. That's, Taylor, you where are you poor, at? You poor child. Uh, I think I quit at about four. I think I was like, okay. I don't need any more of this. But the first, yeah. the first two, I was in there. I was in it. Great, great, great. All right, well, I'll guide you guys through this. I've seen all nine, pl- or I've seen all eight, and then the uh, Hobbs and Shaw spinoff. So a little bit of aficionado with this series. So I'm excited <laughs> to guide you guys uh, into this insanity. And Keegan, what are you driving these days? Is it real rice stuff? What is it? No, it's a uh, hybrid RAV4. I'm full dad mode these days. I'm a little uh, kind of out of that world. <laughs> but there you got, was you got a time some NOS on it, though, right? 
Well, there was a time in my life where I would drive to see this in my riced out Miata on coilovers and I would do burnouts <laughs> in the parking lot after. So this is a very influential series for me. Are we, are we me. allowed to say that? That was before he put airbags on it. You know, he bagged it out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, awesome. Well, I'm excited.